Rags to riches stories have captured the imaginations of many people throughout the years. There's a saying, everyone loves a good rags to riches story. One well-known story that I had thought of when first thinking about this text that has elements of that is Mark Twain's Prince and the Pauper. Many who have not read that book may have seen some contemporized or some animated version of it. I'm among such ones. You may be familiar with what happens in that story. In that story, there is the Prince of England, and he ends up switching places with a London pauper who looks just like him. So as the story goes on, they switch places. The pauper is in the position of the prince, and then the prince is in the position of the pauper. And by the time you get to the end of the story, you find that they end up switching places once again, kind of. The prince is restored to the throne, and he becomes king. And at the end of Twain's original story, the pauper, Tom Canty, is given a chief place at Christ's hospital, distinctive dress, the throne's protection, the crown's support, and the king declared that he should be called and known by the honorable title, the king's ward. It was a story with rags to riches elements in it. There are plenty of those in the world. Plenty of those kind of stories. Stories of individuals who went from say, extreme poverty, or even in some cases, orphanhood, and they became millionaires, and in some cases, billionaires. But what I want to tell you today is that the greatest rags-to-riches story, you could say, is truly that of every Christian. Every Christian is truly a rags-to-riches story in the most ultimate sense. Every Christian has gone from wearing filthy rags of sin and supposed self-righteousness to being clothed in the garments of salvation and the very righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every Christian has gone from being in a place of spiritual death to being raised to spiritual life and even being seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus according to Ephesians 1. Every Christian has gone from being without God in the world, to use language from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, to being called a child of God, John chapter 1, verse 12, to being called an heir of God and a joint heir of Christ, Romans chapter 8, verse 17. It's the greatest rags to riches story ever. And the only reason why that story exists is because in the purposes of God, His Son is the greatest riches to rags story ever. See, you can't appreciate the true story of a Christian going from rags to riches unless you better understand how Christ went from riches to rags, if you will. And that truth is found here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, found amidst a section of Scripture in which the Apostle Paul was reminding the Corinthians to, if you will, not forget the incarnation and don't forget the cross. This is found amidst a practical section of Scripture. But I want you to understand that this text, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, what we are going to study today, is not a diamond in the rough. Why do I say that? All of God's Spirit-inspired words are diamonds. But you might say that this is a gospel-shaped diamond found amidst other diamonds of Spirit-inspired practical instruction. As Paul is exhorting these Corinthians, and we're going to talk about what he was exhorting them towards in a moment, as he's exhorting them towards giving, there is a single verse that, if you will, reaches back to, if you will, eternity past, reaches down in time, 
and then stretches forward into eternity future. It's an amazing verse of Scripture. It's a verse that speaks of the super condescension of Christ Jesus and the marvelous elevation of the people of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. We'll get there soon enough. We could immediately set our eyes on that text of Scripture and marvel at the theological treasures contained therein, but I think an understanding of its context will help us to better appreciate it, and we will find some instruction and application along the way. So the context of 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 2 Corinthians chapter 9 is that Paul was collecting an offering for Jerusalem saints. That means Jerusalem Christians who were suffering. They were in need. They were to some degree impoverished. And Paul was seeking to collect an offering to help them. And if you were to ask, well, why were they in such a state of need? I think the answer is multifaceted. When you see in the book of Acts, we'll see this as we continue our study in the book of Acts. You'll see that persecution was experienced by Jerusalem Christians over and over and over again. Initially through the Sanhedrin to the apostles, Peter and John, and then the apostles and so on. Remember that there in Jerusalem and Judea, Stephen was stoned. Remember that there was a great persecution that broke out against the church, Acts chapter 8 verse 1. And that the Christians were scattered to different places in Judea and other surrounding regions. Remember that Paul, before he was the Apostle Paul as we know him, he was Saul of Tarsus. And he was arresting Christians, dragging them from their homes, putting them in prison. Perhaps many of those who were in prison were released and they were in a state of poverty upon being released. But then we see the persecution continues. In Acts chapter 12, we see that Herod started to harass some of the church. James is most immediately in view. I say all that to say persecution was a problem in Jerusalem and in Judea. So that meant that Christians would be, at a a minimum, ostracized from economic life, from political life, from social life, from religious life within that community. So that would put them in a greater need of others to help them since they didn't have access to what they previously had access to. And you add that, add to that the fact that they suffered famines. We see one spoken of very clearly in Acts chapter 11 prophesied by the prophet Agabus that there would be a famine that would hit Judea and even beyond Judea, other regions in the world and so on. But we know according to history that that area also suffered multiple famines. In fact, when the Christians at Antioch had heard about a famine coming, they thought to send resources, Acts chapter 11, verse 29, to the Jerusalem saints, to those in Judea. So these Christians were in a state of need, and Paul is seeking to mobilize these Corinthian Christians to live out their Christian profession, to come alongside of their brethren. So a few things I want you to see as we make our way to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. First thing, you would look, if you would look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, you see that the Apostle Paul is using the example of other Christians to spur the Corinthians on to Christ-honoring generosity. He's using the example of these Macedonians. So I want you to note that Paul is not only going to use the greatest example, the Lord Jesus Christ, he's using the example of other Christians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, he tells the Corinthians, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. <coughs> now, among the churches of Macedonia were places like Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. They were north of Corinth. 
But unlike Corinth, they did not have much. They weren't, if you will, the wealthy Christians. Paul, in verse 2, you see that he described them as having been in a great trial of affliction and deep poverty. If you look in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, you see that those Christians were persecuted. They received the word of God in a state of affliction and trial and in the midst of persecution. So he describes them as being in that, a great trial of affliction and deep or extreme poverty. But nonetheless, we find that they were giving Christians, that they did it joyfully. Paul didn't have to coerce them. They gave freely. With their regenerated, newly granted hearts, they are giving freely. Verse 3, if you look at verse 4, in fact, they were pleading with Paul to give. Paul didn't have to plead with them. They knew brethren were in need, and they pleaded with Paul. And their giving, if you look at verse 5, was an outworking of dedication to Christ. They first gave themselves to the Lord, and then they gave themselves to this work. And Paul's using them as an example. I think this is very instructive. He's using the example of the Macedonian church, churches like Thessalonica, Philippi, and Berea, to, if you will, wake up the Corinthians in an area that they had fallen asleep. And I just want to say, I think this is a good reminder for Christians to know that we can be spurred on and we ought to be spurred on by the example of other Christians. Don't miss the examples that God has put right around you in the body of Christ. See, we're not to be like Cain, right? We're to love one another, not like Cain. That's language that comes from 1 John 3. When Cain saw his brother Abel and that his works were righteous, what did he do? He became envious and he murdered his brother. He looked at his brother and he became envious because he saw his brother's works were righteous and his works were not. See, when a Christian looks at other believers and sees them excelling in areas that are perhaps beyond where we are, we don't start grumbling. We don't start saying, oh, that goody two-shoes. You know, he thinks he's so good. She thinks she's so kind. She's so thoughtful, blah, blah, blah. You don't do that. You admire the grace of God that's at work in them. Remember how Paul started this chapter? He wanted to let the Corinthians know about what? Look at verse 1 again. We make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. He's holding them out as an example, yes, but he's saying behind their example is grace. God had worked in them. So if you see a sister who excels in thoughtfulness, if you see a brother who excels in self-sacrifice, and you say, I could grow in that. I need to grow in hospitality or generosity. I need to grow in these things. Don't envy what you see. Admire what you see. It's the grace of God at work in them. Amen. And I think it's a good reminder to us that we can be spurred on, and we ought to be, by the example that we find in other Christians. Something else I want you to see as well. Paul desired that Christian unity would show itself in charity. And you can see this very clearly in the text of Scripture. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you turn ahead to verse 24. In verse 24, the Apostle Paul tells them, Therefore, show to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf. If you look back right before the, at the verse right before what we're going to study today, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8, the Apostle Paul says, I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. So he's exhorting them to walk in Christian love to demonstrate the reality of their love. We know that walking in love demonstrates 
the reality of our Christian profession. Right? John said we know we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. And if we see a brother in need and we shut up our heart from such a one, how then does the love of God abide in us? To paraphrase language from 1 John chapter 3, verse 17. But think of the message this would send to other churches and to the Jerusalem Christians as well. Paul was not collecting an offering just to send a message. But notice, he was collecting an offering from Gentile Christians for Jewish Christians. This would send a gospel message indeed. That the gospel transcends ethnic and cultural boundaries. That you could have these Gentile Christians in different parts of the world supporting Christians they would likely never see. Christians they likely never met. Christians that were of a different ethnicity. Christians that were of a different culture. But they shared that which was most important and they were forever family in the Lord Jesus Christ. They shared the gospel. They shared the same Father, the same Lord, the same Holy Spirit. And it would be a tangible witness that the gospel unity that Christians have transcend cultural identity. It transcends ethnic distinctions. Those things are blurred in a holy and good way, if you will, when we are joined together in Christ. They become so secondary, although they are still present. Because there is a unity that far exceeds all of that. And these Gentile Christians giving, in some cases, out of their abundant or deep poverty and out of their abundant affliction, would be a witness to the world that the gospel is unique. Amazing. That's a little bit, a little bit of the context that we see going into our text. Let's make our way into our text. And I want us to linger upon this text. So Paul used the example of the Corinthians, or used the example of the Macedonians to the Corinthians, but now he moves to the greatest example of giving, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what I want us to do, I want us to linger over this verse, and we're going to essentially answer Three questions along the way. In what way was Christ rich? In what way did Christ become poor? And what was the purpose of Christ's poverty? If you want to be better prepared for Lord willing Christmas 2024, get a hold of this verse. If you have this verse in view, you will better be prepared to celebrate the incarnation of our Lord and Savior. So three questions. In what way was Christ rich? In what way did Christ become poor? And what was the purpose of Christ's poverty? Our text reads as follows. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, that you, through His poverty, might become rich. Behold the theology that flows from those three statements in the verse. That though he was rich, statement number one, yet for your sakes he became poor, statement number two, that you through his poverty might become rich, statement number three. Let's look at that first phrase. Though he was rich. Oftentimes in church history and in our lives, we look at those who left behind homes, or lands, or riches for the sake of the gospel with esteem. Some time back, I told you about William Borden, 
for instance, who was an heir to the Borden Dairy Estate. He left behind great privilege to train to become a missionary to Muslims in China. We know that here in this local church, we support missionaries who have left behind air-conditioned homes. They've left behind easy access to shopping plazas. They've left behind easy access to modern medical care and more to bring the gospel to say Papua New Guinea. And we look at such sacrifice and we admire such sacrifices. What I want us to be reminded of is that the distance between where they were and where they went or where they were and where they sought to go cannot compare to the distance that the Son of God traveled from glory to earth. I mean, Jesus didn't move from like an upper middle class neighborhood to like a lower middle class neighborhood. Jesus didn't even go from like, you know, the first world to the third world. He went from pre-incarnate, pre-existent glory in heaven when heaven was created, enjoying that. And even before heaven was created, enjoying the glory of communion within the Trinity forever to earth, to earth. And before we get to that, a couple quick notes here. The richness that Paul is speaking about in this phrase, that though he was rich, please, please be clear on this, is not a reference to any point during Jesus' earthly ministry. Paul is not talking about some time during Jesus' earthly ministry. You may hear a false teacher here or a false teacher there say, Jesus was rich during his earthly ministry because he had a treasurer. No, in Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, we see that women supported out of their sustenance, for instance, Jesus and the apostles. And you did have somebody like Judas controlling the money bag and then taking money from the money bag and so on. But that in no way suggests that Jesus was rich and he had some kind of million-dollar ministry. Matthew 8.20, the foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. It's a reference to Jesus during his earthly ministry. So what we see here in this text is not a reference to Jesus' earthly state. It's a reference to his pre-incarnate state. So two brief points here. First one is this. What makes the nativity or the birth of Jesus, I think, all the more marvelous is that you and I must be very familiar with the fact that it was not the Son of God's beginning. The Son of God's beginning did not happen in Bethlehem. It did not happen in Mary's womb. Jesus never had a beginning, the Son of God. Yes, there came a moment when he did add humanity to deity, but his conception was not his beginning. Remember what Jesus said during his earthly ministry, for I have come down from heaven. John chapter 6, verse 38 he told his Jewish detractors in John chapter 8, before Abraham was, I am. This was even part of the messianic prophecy of who the Messiah would be. In Micah chapter 5 verse 2, we are told that the one who is coming into the world, that Messiah, his goings forth were from of old, from everlasting. And the examples could go on. John chapter 3 verse 17, the father sent his son into the world. Jesus, in John chapter 6, verse 41, said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. So I want to remind you that the Son of God's beginning did not happen in the womb of a virgin. That is the moment he added humanity to his deity, yes. But he had existed for all of eternity before that. Also, Jesus' pre-existence is seen in the grammar of the language that's used right here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Look at your text. 
when it says that though he was rich, the words was rich, very literally in the Greek, reads as being rich. That word translated as was is a verb, but it's a present participle. Just speaking of an ongoing reality. That Jesus being rich, now contrast that with what follows. He became poor. That's an aorist tense, a past tense. Speaks to something happening in the past at a point in time. So he had always been rich, but he became poor. Even the grammar witnesses to the Son of God's pre-existence. And again, I think you and I will better appreciate Bethlehem if we can grab with, to a greater degree the heights and the glory from which the Son of God descended. So how do we understand Jesus' pre-incarnate riches? First, to help you understand this, I want to take you to the book of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6, we are going to look at verses 1 through 3. I want to provide you with a textual picture, and then I'm going to provide you with additional texts so that you can understand how to understand how Jesus had always been rich. We get glimpses of these things in Isaiah chapter 6. The picture comes in Isaiah 6, but first we get a little bit of historical context. Isaiah says, in the year that King Uzziah died, so Uzziah was a king of Judah for many years. Under his reign, Judah had prospered. Judah had prospered quite a bit. He represented stability for the people of Judah. Judah prospered under his reign. And you can imagine that when he died, there was an element of uncertainty and concern that swept over the nation of Judah. All of a sudden, this king who ruled and brought prosperity under the grace of God to Judah, he's gone. The throne is empty. The throne has been vacated. And it's during that time of doubtless national despair and concern that the prophet Isaiah has a vision of the throne in heaven, which was indeed occupied. He goes on and he says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, when you look in, and you can look at this later, when you look in John chapter 12, verses 37 through 41, you see that John is speaking of Jesus. In verse 37 in John 12, he says that Jesus did so many signs before the Jewish people, and yet they did not believe him. And then John goes on to quote from two places from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 6. And then in John 12, 41, John wrote these things Isaiah said when or because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Who's the him? You go back to verse 37. The him is Jesus. What was the glory that Isaiah saw? Well, he's quoting from Isaiah 6. What did Isaiah see in Isaiah 6? He saw the Lord high and lifted up, seated on a throne. Who did he see? He saw the image of the invisible God seated on the throne. He saw the pre-incarnate Son. That's who he saw. He saw the one who was the brightness of the Father's glory and the express image of his person. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. The one who was in the beginning with God and yet at the same time was God. John chapter 1 verse 1. So consider Isaiah 6. 
a little bit of a glimpse into the richness of the pre-existent son of the father. So think about this. What did Isaiah see? He said he saw him sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. Ah, so you could say the son of God was rich in sovereignty. He was rich in majesty. He's seated on this elevated throne, high and lifted up. Isaiah said the train of his robe filled the temple. It's often said that the length of a king's robe and the train of the robe was an indicator of a king's greatness or dignity or importance or splendor or grandeur. So you could say that Christ was rich in grandeur. He was rich in splendor. Note, by the way, that the train of the robe, what? Filled the temple. And one day, his splendor will fill the earth. Just like the train of the robe filled the temple. Now, Isaiah also said, you go on, Isaiah said that there stood seraphim. These burning ones, these angelic creatures, these fiery beings. And each of them had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Now think about this. Have you ever thought about this? That the seraphim, they have six wings, and they're using two of those wings to cover their faces. They're sinless. They're sinless creatures. Yet even they and the presence of the glory of this one are covering their faces because he is so other, he is so great, he is so holy. And there they are with wings, and there they are with wings covering their feet. They are just so mindful of the holiness and the otherness of this one who is on the throne. So you could say that the Son of God was rich in transcendent, resplendent, effulgent glory and purity. And what were these seraphs saying as they flew? They cried to one another and they said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. So what then can you say of Christ's pre-existent riches? He was rich in holiness. That these holy beings who are without sin are marveling at His holiness, His otherness, what makes Him God. And they're marveling. Praising him for his holiness. Quick application right here. You go on in Isaiah chapter 6. You see that Isaiah seeing this made him mindful of his sinfulness. And he needed cleansing. If you catch a glimpse of the holiness of God. If you catch a glimpse of the pre-existent glory of the Son of God. You, if you haven't already been there, ought to be brought to a state of mindfulness of your own sinfulness. And the need for salvation that can only be found in Christ Jesus. Because he is holy, holy, holy. Now this scene, I think, begins to give us a sense of the richness of the pre-incarnate Christ. But we can go on beyond this. We go into the New Testament, and we could say on top of that, the pre-incarnate Son was rich in possessions. Everything was made through Him and for Him. Colossians 1:16. He was also rich in communion. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 17, verse 24 to the Father. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. Rich in communion. 
enjoying love, inter-Trinitarian love between the Father and the Son forever, for all of eternity, as long as God has been God. Rich in that communion. And doubtless, if he was enjoying that communion, he was enjoying the heights of pleasure and joy. So he was rich in pleasure, rich in eternal joy. So just to provide some for instances, the Son of God was rich in sovereignty, majesty, splendor, dignity, praise, possessions, pleasure, and glory. Remember what Jesus said to the Father during his high priestly prayer? Shortly before he would go and die on the cross for us, he prayed, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. All for just a glimpse of the richness of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we even get a glimpse of that, we'd be like the Queen of Sheba. When she traveled to see Solomon, and when she saw Solomon, she said, and indeed the half was not told to me. Your wisdom and prosperity exceed the fame which I heard. We would say something like that. To be more accurate and yet still inaccurate, we would say something along the lines of, indeed the tenth or the hundredth or the thousandth has not been told to me. You are so much more rich in glory and wisdom and splendor and majesty than I could even realize. No one has ever been as rich as the eternally begotten Son of God. In that we get a glimpse just a glimpse of the backstory to Bethlehem, of how Jesus was eternally glorious. And while not laying aside his deity, he laid aside the privileges of deity, if you will. He laid aside, if you will, untold riches to travel from heaven to earth and to add humanity to his deity. That's the first phrase. In what way was Christ rich? Well, we got a little bit of a glimpse into how Christ was rich. The second phrase, yet for your sakes, he became poor. In what way did Jesus become poor? Now, let me first say that the poverty spoken of here transcends material poverty. I think that becomes very clear in the next phrase, that you through his poverty might become rich. So I think the poverty spoken of here clearly transcends material poverty. But with that said, don't overlook the fact that our Savior did not descend from a heavenly throne to an earthly one. He descended from a heavenly throne to a manger. Nor was he born into a wealthy family. We remember that when Joseph and Mary offered a sacrifice at Jesus' presentation and dedication at the temple, Luke chapter 2, verse 22, it was prescribed for Mary after the days of her purification, according to Leviticus chapter 12, verse 6, that she would offer a yearling, a one-year-old lamb, as well as a dove or a pigeon as a burnt offering. But as you read in Luke chapter, uh, Luke chapter 2, you see that they did not offer that. And according to Leviticus chapter 12, verse 8, for those who were unable to offer that, there could be a substitute of two turtle doves or two young pigeons. And that's what Mary and Joseph did. So this suggests very clearly that Mary and Joseph were not well off financially. As a quick aside, I do want you to see this. 
When God sent his son into the world, he did not send his son into an affluent family. But he did send him into a home where his two earthly parents would be godly. When you look at Matthew chapter 1, we see that Joseph, right, his stepdad, if you will, not, he's always referred to in the scriptures as the husband of Mary, so there'd be no mistake. Jesus' father was his heavenly father. But he was called a just man, a righteous man. And we see that his righteousness was connected with mercy. We see that in Matthew chapter 1. You look in Luke chapter 1 and you see that Mary was a godly woman who had scriptures hidden in her heart, submitted to the will of God. And I think that's instructive for us. I think while providing for children is doubtless important, and Mary and Joseph did that. Jesus was not a beggar. I think we see very clearly here that godliness is the priority over affluence. When God sent his son into the world, he sent them into a home that would have two individuals who were godly. And I just want to encourage the parents in this place to remember that. What your children need more than what you are, by God's grace, called to provide for them and so on, they need your godliness. You want to leave them an inheritance, well, above the inheritance of material things, you want to leave them a legacy of prayer, devotions, Bible teaching, evangelism. You want to leave a godly example of love and care, commitment to the local church, service within the local church. Talk about an inheritance. And I think in Mary and Joseph, we get a quick reminder of the priority of godliness in parents. Now, back to the question, in what way was Jesus made poor? In what way did he become poor? To help answer that question, I think we can come at it this way. Let's consider some of the differences between his pre-incarnate state and his incarnate state. Instead of owning all things in his deity, Jesus would borrow things in his humanity. As it has often been said, he was placed at his birth in a borrowed manger. He rode into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey. He celebrated the Last Supper in a borrowed upper room, and he was buried in a tomb that wasn't his own, but the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. The one through whom all things were made and for whom all things were made, yet in his humanity, he's borrowing things, if you will. In his humanity, he has women supporting his ministry. Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. In his humanity, he basically has nothing. His clothes are gambled for at the foot of the cross. This one who threw everything, the one through him, everything was made. Yet at the same time, in his humanity, he would borrow things. And he would have so little. Instead of sitting on a throne high and lifted up. During his earthly ministry, we know that so often he would have nowhere to lay his head. Instead of only exercising divine attributes of, say, omnipotence and omniscience, he would add humanity to his deity and he would know hunger. He would grow in wisdom. He would sleep and he would thirst. The one who upholds the universe by the word of his power would experience physical weakness and even death. And the examples go on. Think of the poverty that he experienced. Instead of being seated on a throne with seraphim around him saying, holy, 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 he goes to a cross and he has human beings, fallen human beings that he's sustaining by the word of his power, crying out, crucify him, crucify him. 
Instead of splendor on the cross, he would endure shame. Instead of being on a throne high and lifted up, he is put upon a cross high and lifted up. Instead of being only rich in divine pleasure, he would be made a man of sorrows. He would weep and he would experience divine wrath. Instead of only knowing the riches of his father's communion, he would be made sin for us and would cry out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The eternally blessed one would become a curse on our behalf so that we might be redeemed from the curse of the law. What heights that he condescended from and what depths he condescended to. What a savior. Instead of only knowing life, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, the one who has life within him, tasted death on the cross. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. He tasted death and he died. You and I do not know the heights from which Jesus descended, nor do we know the depths to which he descended. We don't know the riches of his pre-existent state, nor do we know the depths of the poverty that he suffered on our behalf. And why did he do this? Why did he give so generously of himself? What was the purpose of the Son of God's becoming poor for our sakes, the last phrase of our text gives you the answer. That you, through his poverty, might become rich. That is why he did it. Did he do it for the glory of the Father? Yes, he did it for the glory of the Father. Did he do it for his namesake? Yes, he did it for his namesake. But as the text says, he did it for you. His bride, his people, he did it for you. That you through his poverty might become rich. That great cost that he undertook to himself, embracing poverty on levels we haven't experienced, many of us, and embracing poverty on a level we who are in Christ will never experience the wrath of God, was so that you could be made eternally rich in Christ Jesus. Think of the richness that has invaded your poverty if you are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are now a child of God. You bear the richest of all identities, a child of the living God. You are the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you carry within you the treasure of the Holy Spirit of the living God. What dignity has been bestowed upon our poverty? If you are in Christ, you have the rich joy of forever searching the unsearchable riches of wisdom and knowledge that are found in God, to use language from Romans 11.33. You have the rich joy of enjoying forever the richness of his goodness, Romans 2.4. You get to explore forever the riches of his grace, to use language from Ephesians 1.7. And you get to spend forever searching out the unsearchable riches of Christ, Ephesians 3.8. If you are in Christ, regardless of where you live now, you have a very rich place that has been prepared for you. You have a place prepared for you in the heavenly city. And the time will come where you will inherit the earth. 
If you are in Christ Jesus, do not forget what is told to you many times in many ways in the word of God. To use language from 1 Corinthians 3, all things are yours. To use language from Matthew 5, you will inherit the earth. To use language from Romans 8.17, you're an heir of God and a joint heir of Christ. If you are in Christ, regardless of your position in this world, you have been raised to sit in heavenly places with Christ. If you are in Christ Jesus, think of how now you are rich in righteousness. You were poor in spirit, but now you've been made rich in righteousness. The very righteousness of Christ has been imputed to your spiritual account. If you are rich in Christ, regardless what you have done in the past, you are rich in forgiveness. You say, my sins, they are many. His mercy is more. You are rich in forgiveness. And as much as you could remember what you've done, and I would encourage you to forget and leave those things behind, but remember, it's all covered by forgiveness. Because you're rich in forgiveness. He has made you rich. You were bankrupt. You didn't have it before. You were guilty before the living God. But now all of a sudden in Christ you've been made rich in forgiveness. Forgiveness covering all of your sin. Because the blood of Christ has made you clean. <clears throat> Thanks be to God. Regardless of your current level of joy. However high or not that might be. <laughs> you shall be forever rich in pleasure. In God's presence is fullness of joy, and at his right hand, pleasures forevermore. Do you see a little bit more of what you've been raised up to? Do you see a little bit more of what he descended from? Do you see a little bit more of what he descended to? So that you would be raised up to spend forever with him. I mean, what's an application for this? I mean, I, I, at the end of the day, I think living the Christian life is the application to this. I mean, everything is the application to this. All the imperatives of the scriptures are applications to this. For, for the Corinthians, most immediately in the context, it was, if Jesus would do that for you, you give yourself for your brethren. You come alongside of them. You help them. Corinthians, do not shut up your heart. Go and do what you can. Take that offering and support those suffering Christians in Jerusalem. That's the immediate context in the text. But Jesus' example ought to motivate us to worship. It ought to motivate us to prayer. It ought to motivate us to evangelism. It ought to motivate us to be thankful. It ought to motivate us to mortify murmuring. It ought to motivate us to serve. It ought to motivate us to all things that we ought to do in the Christian life when we think of what he did for us. Thanks be to God. Amen. What a great gospel. Would you have made that trip? Would you have gone from glory to earth? Would that be the vacation destination that you would have chosen? <laughs> well, you don't have to choose. <laughs> Christ came. He went from glory to earth so that you could go from earth to heaven, that you could be his in the present and eventually spend forever enjoying him in the new earth where heaven and earth are joined, if you will. What a great God. What a Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the glimpses of the glory from which Christ descended from, which better help us understand the depths to which he descended on our behalf. We praise you for him and that you have raised us up and that you've given us riches that have invaded our poverty. 
We thank you for what we have in Christ Jesus. And we pray, Father, that going into this new year, going into this day, that you would help us, Father, to be filled with praise, filled with adoration, marveling at the one who is rich in splendor and majesty and glory and so on, and yet descended and embraced a poverty that is far deeper than we could even imagine so that we could experience a blessing of his presence and his joy and all that comes with it forever and ever. Oh, thank you, Father. Help us to worship you and to present ourselves as an ongoing offering, an ongoing living sacrifice. May love drive us as we behold this picture and seeing your great love for us and Christ's great love for us in the gospel, may by the power of your spirit you help us to respond with ongoing measures of love to you and to others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.